Great, good. Well, uh, as if you were here last week, Chris and Peggy are out celebrating their 40th anniversary, and so uh, they will be back this week, and Chris will be back uh, on Wednesday and then next week. But if you will, uh, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, put one finger there, and uh, we'll get there eventually, and then with another finger, go to John chapter 4, Exodus chapter 3 and John chapter 4. Now, as I talked about last week, as uh, Chris gave me these two sermons, I wanted to uh, kind of discuss something that I read about in a book by Nick Ripkin called The Insanity of God. And this book is just a story about his life and how he was a missionary in Somalia for six years. But while he was there, he found himself in constant uh, persecution against the gospel, against the Christian faith. And we see um, in his story uh, that he uh, was persecuted over and over and over, time and time again, uh, and so to the point where he became discouraged, to the point where he uh, lost hope. And so he began to ask himself this question, can the gospel really uh, penetrate and thrive inside of a context uh, where, or inside of a culture that is vehemently against it? Can the gospel actually take root and can it actually thrive inside of a culture, inside of a government climate where they're constantly trying to push it away or to put it down? And so we find in this study that he has that yes, uh, the gospel can thrive in that sort of environment and none of us would be surprised by that. Uh, but what he finds interesting to me is that Inside of those things, as he goes to all those different cultures and all those different countries uh, that have persecution against it, he finds two common things inside of the Christian faith or inside the believers there that allow the gospel to thrive. And those two things were this, the Bible, a devotion to it, a devotion to study it, to learn it, to go after it. And that's what we talked about last week. But then the second thing that he finds is a devotion to what he calls heart songs, but what I will call worship. There's a devotion to it. There is a heart behind it. There is a, a captivatedness that they have in the Lord that leads them uh, to this awe of the Lord that pushes them to a place where they will stand up no matter what the cost for the gospel. And so today I want to answer three things. I want to answer three questions for us. The first is this. Um, what does God desire from us inside of our worship? What is God's hope for us inside of it? Second, how do we cultivate that in our life? And then thirdly, why it's important. So the first is this, what does God want from our worship? And that can be found in John chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 21 through 24. John chapter 4, verse 21 through 24. Now, we're catching this up right in the middle of a section where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. I can't tell you the whole story, but she's a Samaritan, and Jesus is with them, and Jesus is a Jew, and they begin to have this conversation. Uh, he, Jesus alone, and this woman, the disciples are out getting lunch for Jesus and them because they're on a long journey, but Jesus ends up at this well, and this woman comes at noon. And they have this long conversation, but listen to what Jesus says to this woman in response to her question about worship, where they should worship. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You see, her question was about location. Should we worship in Jerusalem or should we worship somewhere else? Because we're getting conflicting reports here and you're a prophet, so what should we do? So Jesus says, it doesn't matter. There will be a time when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship. But then listen to verse 22. 
You see, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. And listen to this statement. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, the first thing that God wants from our worship is that it's done in spirit and in truth. That there's a true way to worship the Lord, and there's not a true way to worship the Lord. You see, and we can go at it multiple different ways, but the thing that's important that we must understand, that if we want to be true worshipers, we must worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Now, this word spirit is a word that often is referred to uh, the seat of emotion inside of a person's life. It actually means uh, the air that we breathe. It's, it's this word pneuma, which literally means the air we breathe in and the air we breathe out. And so this seat of emotion that's often referred to in the text means that our worship must be full of emotion. That our worship must encompass all of who we are. And then it's not just this simple sort of thing where we just go in and we sing some songs and we, uh, we listen for the truth to be displayed, but rather it's an emotional sort of thing. There's an emotional connection between us and the Lord. But it's not just emotion either. It's also truth. This word truth um, means uh, that the seed of intellect, and the Greek word means uh, that we see it as firm, see it as solid, see it as binding. You see, it's not emotional worship that doesn't hold anything to truth, but it's not just truth or emotional sort of things that hold no context with truth in it. You see, worship that God desires, true worship is worship that encompasses all of our emotion, all of our heart, every bit of who we are, but then also it causes us to dive deep into the truth that we would see it as firm, as solid, or binding. You see, but sometimes in worship, sometimes in the evangelical world, we tend to navigate um, the, the, the waters kind of differently. You see, sometimes we tend to be only focused on emotion. And so we have what has some people have called kind of this charismatic chaos sort of worship services where there's only emotions involved in it and very little truth at times. But then there are other places where in response to this, we navigate, we swing the pendulum over here to where it's only truth, where we see kind of worship as uh, the pre-truth uh, service, where it's something that must be... Um, Bared, I guess, in order to get to the truth of the Bible, in order to get the word being taught, because we are so focused on truth that we have very little concern about emotion. Can you imagine loving anything like that? What if I told my wife, hey, I'm going to love you in truth, but not in emotion? Or what if I told my kids, hey, I'm going to love you in truth, or I'm going to love you in emotion, I'm going to care about you, and I'm, going to, I'm going to just going to encompass all of you, and I want to know you and to walk with you, and I want to cry with you, but I never put any truth into their life. You see, it always goes wrong, doesn't it? If we swing the pendulum to one side or the other, but Jesus says to this woman, hey, what God desires from us is that we would be worshipers that have full emotion and full truth. And those are the kind of people, the worshipers that God desires. Now the question is though, how does God cultivate that kind of worship in our life? 
How does God bring us to a point where we are hard-hearted people that are now emotionally in love with Jesus and then fully wanting truth? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. So God desires worshipers that are, worship him in spirit and in truth. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is a very common story that a lot of us have heard. But Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now we've got to stop right there because we've got to define the story a little bit. You see, Moses, if, if you don't know, Moses is a man who uh, grew up in Egypt because the Israelites are in Egypt, so he's a Jew. He's a Hebrew. And so uh, there was a decree set out by the Pharaoh that says all firstborn males or all males that are born must be put to death. And so Moses is born in the middle of this kind of uh, really strenuous time to be a Hebrew. And so uh, Moses is born and then Moses' mom and sister kind of knit this basket together and put Moses on the Nile River and just float him down to save his life. And then in this, one of the great coincidences of all time, or that God just simply moved, Pharaoh's daughter is in the Nile taking a bath and she sees this baby. And her heart's immediately drawn to this baby and she takes up in what I would call adoption. She adopts this baby. But not only that, uh, Moses' sister is running along the river, kind of watching um, Moses go along. And by the way, if you've ever seen the Nile River, it's amazing that that boat didn't, that little basket didn't just capsize. That's God's provision. Um, but secondly, uh, Moses' sister is walking right by the bank and sees this whole thing happen. And she runs up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, hey, do you need someone to take care of that little boy for you? And, she, and she's like, you know, I do. And her sister's like, well, you're not going to believe this, but there's a woman right over here who just had a baby, and she is ready to nurse a child. And so uh, we can take care of her and just kind of let her, you know, stay in your house, and we'll just take care of him during the day, and we'll be its nanny, kind of that deal. And Pharaoh's daughter agrees with it, and Moses has this great privileged sort of upbringing. And then one day he finds himself uh, in front of an Egyptian and a Hebrew, and the Egyptian is beating uh, the Hebrew slave. And so Moses looks around and doesn't see anyone, and he kills this Egyptian and buries him in the sand. That's what, that's what the Bible says. He buries him in the sand. And then after that, uh, the next day, uh, the, he sees the same sort of argument, and the Egyptian looks at Moses and says, hey, are you going to kill me too? And so Moses runs. He just flees. He, he leaves his privileged background. He leaves everything he has. And in his hard-heartedness, leaves and finds him now. In chapter 3, we find him keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, in the middle of nowhere. This man who has this privileged background, this man who has a lot of the promises of God, who's seen God move in really miraculous ways, we now find him keeping sheep. In his hard-hearted kind of way, he's there, running from, running from everything he's known. And then we see that God shows up. And so the first thing that has to happen is that God has to show up in our worship. That God has to be here. Listen. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame. This is verse 2. Out of fire of the midst of a bush. He looked. Moses looked. And behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside, 
God called to him out of the bush. You see, the first thing that has to happen in order for our worship uh, to be full of emotion, to be full of spirit and full of truth, is that God must be a part. Is that God has to be here with us. That we can't manufacture that sort of thing. You see, 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You see, God wants to reveal himself to us. The Bible also says where two or more are gathered, there he will be also. So here in this room, God is with us. God is right next to us. God is encompassing all of this. He is the audience that we are singing to, that we are uh, singing these truths to. And so we must understand that God has shown up and that he is here with us today. But it's not just that. That's what God does. But what does God require of us? I want you to notice a word that we see often uh, inside of this. It says in the, verse 2, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame. And then it says uh, in verse 3 that Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. You see, Moses turns and looks at the bush. But he doesn't just do that. It doesn't just say it one time. It says, but when the Lord saw that he turned aside, when the Lord saw that he looked at the bush, then God began to speak to him. It was only after Moses looked at the bush that God began to speak. And so one of the biggest barriers that we have in worship is the fact that we are looking at the wrong thing. You see, this word look doesn't just seem to mean a passing glance. It doesn't just mean, oh, look, that's cool, and then go to a certain other place. But rather, it means to examine, to inspect, to understand, to attempt to look at in a certain way. And so what happens is God shows up, and Moses looks at him, and he begins to be captivated by him. You see, one of the biggest barriers that we have is that we are captivated by everything else other than God. You see, there's a lot of life in this room, isn't it? There's a lot of people in here. And all of you, all of us have stories, have things going on in our life. And so right now you might be thinking, man, I've got a really big schedule for the rest of the day today. I've got lunch, I've got to run these errands, I've got to do these things because work starts tomorrow. And so we enter this room thinking about our schedule. Or we enter this room thinking about our children. Man, can't they act better? Why is it every Sunday morning they can only find one shoe? Why is that? I mean, Hallie and I today got in an argument over one shoe that she couldn't find. Or if it's not those things like, what do you have going on at work today? Or better yet, you're thinking about vacation. I can't wait to get away from work. Or you're thinking about a golf game that you have right after this or the fight that you had with your spouse coming into church this morning. And the list can go on and on and on. But all of us come into this room with all sorts of things on our mind. And so we find ourselves looking to something else. When rather the Lord is in our midst and he wants to speak to us and he wants to show us and he wants to give us hope and peace and a future, but rather what, he, what we give him is a multitasking type of worship. Have you ever tried to multitask something or have a multitask with, conversation with your spouse? It never goes well. You see, you miss details. You miss the conversation. You miss everything. Yet we try to multitask worship, and when we do that, we miss all the details that God is trying to give to us. We miss all the communication that God is wanting to have with us. We miss every part of it, and so there's this multitasking type of worship that we become obsessed with. 
but rather God is in our midst and he wants us to look to him. He wants us to gaze upon him. He wants us to study him and examine what is going on in this moment. And he wants us to be in his presence. Now, listen to what happens in the presence of God. Verse 4b. I want to start in verse 4. It says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside, that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. You see, God begins to speak. And he says, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Then God said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then the rest of this chapter and half of chapter 4 is this conversation that God has with Moses about how Moses, wants, Moses is going to go to the Egyptians and free God's people from slavery. And every time God says, hey, I want you to do this, Moses is like, but I have an objection. I can't do it. I can't do this. And God's like, no, I can do it. And Moses is like, no, I can't. And then God's like, you know what? I am that I am has sent you. He goes, yeah, that's great, but I still can't do it. I don't speak well. I stutter. I've got communication problems. And God's like, I will be with you. And then listen to what happens in chapter 4, verse 18. After all this, Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and says to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. You see what happens in the presence of God, Moses' life direction changes. You see, our life's direction will be set by God's presence in our life. Or if I can say it a different way, that God's presence sets the direction of your life. You see, because in the presence of God, many things happen. Listen to some of these. Psalm 102 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. The first thing the presence of God does is it makes us want to sing. It doesn't say sing well, praise the Lord. It just says sing. That we enter the presence of God by singing. There's a music sort of thing that happens when we are in the presence of God. We see that all throughout scripture. But listen to what other things happen. Psalm 9.3 when my enemies turn back, they stumble and they perish before your presence. You see, the enemies of God are combated against in this presence. How many of you feel like you are under attack right now but just need victory from the enemies? We need to go into the presence of the Lord to receive victory. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. How many of us would like to know the path that God has for us in life? How many of us would like to know what it means to be full of joy? Well, that comes in the presence of God. It's not just that. I want to read this one to you because it's so interesting. Psalm 73. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read you a little bit of it. This is a psalm of Asaph, and it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are in pure heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So this is a psalm of a worship leader that is, his main charge is to lead other people in worship. And his deal is this, hey, God has been good to Israel, but I'm frustrated because it seems like the wicked are 
getting ahead more in life than I am. I mean, can we relate with that? God, why is it that this person over here seems to get everything right, that he has everything together, yet me, I'm trying to worship you and I'm trying to do what's right and I always seem to be behind? Why is that? And we see this real passionate plea, all these really tough questions about why this is happening. But listen to what happens in verse 16. It says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He says, I tried to understand why this injustice would happen, why God would seem to be on other people's sides and not mine when I'm the one that's trying to follow after him. And I've been trying to think of it, but it's wearisome. My head hurts. I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. Verse 17, it was a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. You see, some of us need encouragement. Some of us need a word from the Lord. And those words are found in the presence of God. But the presence of God only comes when God shows up and we look upon him. When God is in our midst and we begin uh, to gaze and to study him instead of everything else that we're looking after. You see, so God wants people that, are in, that worship him in spirit and truth. But secondly, it happens when God shows up and we look at him. And then thirdly, the reason it's important is because we find encouragement inside of that. But, but here's, here's the really interesting part to me as I was studying this. And I can go on. Acts 3.20 says, the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There are all sorts of things that happen. But here's what's interesting to me, is that two people can be in the same room right next to each other, and one can have this great experience with the presence of the Lord, and the other can walk away unchanged completely. It's this really irony sort of thing. And so we as believers are, are codependent on each other. You see, y'all as a congregation are dependent on the staff, and the staff is dependent on you. So there are some responsibilities that we have that God has charged us to. Uh, the first is this, that when we are in our times of worship together, that we are responsible for making sure that we aren't creating distractions, that this isn't some light show up here, that this isn't some deal where we're like mesmerized by the people on the stage but rather we're mesmerized by God. You, have to, you, ha, you should expect that from us, that we are people that are responsible for not creating distractions. Third, secondly, we are responsible for singing songs that are biblically accurate, that we should put the words up on the screen that match with this text, that we should never sing anything that is untrue. And there are untrue worship songs. But then thirdly, that you need to... Res you should expect from us to prepare ourselves spiritually to lead us in worship. That we can't take people where we haven't been on our own. That you should expect that from us. But while you should expect, thing, expect that from us, there are things that, that you need to bring to the table as well. That we all need to bring to the table. That the first is this. That we need to be cultivating a sense of awe of the Lord. In our life personally, you see that word worship means to humbly, to see something and to see its worth and then humbly submit to it. So we need, we need as believers, need to constantly be cultivating an awe of the Lord in our life. 
that we should remember the times that God has been faithful to us and write those things down so that we are ever think that God is against us or that God is nowhere to be found, that we have seen him move in the past. There's this, um, we went to family camp, and I'll tell a story quickly, but we went to family camp and we learned all about these, um, how to raise our kids inside of our sessions together. And in this last session, uh, they brought in these rocks. Now, a biblical term would be Ebenezer is what they're doing. It just means uh, something to remember by. And so they challenged us. They said, hey, we want you to take a rock, take a paint pen, write something on it, and put it somewhere that when you see it, you'll be challenged again to remember what you learned here and to continually live it out when you go home. And so I put this statement called pass it on. And I put it right at, on the shelf as I leave my office that when I go home, my work's not done. That my job is to pass the faith, my faith on that God has given me to my kids. And so every day when I pass this and I remember it, I don't see it every day. But when I do see it, I remember, hey, on my way home, I need to remember to pass this on. You see, God has done some amazing things in your life already. And you need to remember those things because when we remember those things, it brings us in awe of the Lord and it challenges us to go deeper with him. We've got to remember those things. And you can't just walk through life without any semblance of what happened in the past. Secondly, we need to make sure that when we enter this room that, our, that we are expecting to hear from the Lord. That when we enter this room that we are expecting to be in the presence of God. Because so often expectations set the experience. I mean, think about it. Like how many times do you go, uh, for me it's a football game. Like how many times do you go into a football game just expecting to see a great game and then your emotions are all into it. You're, you're evaluating all of it. You're screaming, you're yelling, you're applauding, you're doing all these things. You're living in the moment because you expected something great to happen. You see, we need to enter into the presence of the Lord expecting that the things that God says happens in his presence will actually happen. And we should soften our hearts before we even enter this room so that we'd be prepared as a group to go into worship, to go into a place where we worship in spirit and truth. Uh, but then thirdly, thirdly, what we need to do on our own is we need to begin to cultivate the postures of worship in our life. There are all sorts of postures, and Steve gave me this great document that has um, about 30 of them on there, but I just want to read a few. Uh, David danced before the Lord, Lot bowed his head, it says, in heaven we will kneel. There are tons of references about singing. That Israel stood when God renewed uh, his covenant with them. That Solomon stood at the altar raising his hands. And the list can go on and on and on and on and on. But what we need to begin to do is inside of our personal life, begin to cultivate some of these postures of worship. You see, if we don't ever have any of these postures of worship, then, then we'll never feel comfortable doing them. If... If we never have knelt before the Lord on our own, then we will never feel comfortable kneeling with him in, pu in public. If we've never raised a hand, and, I, and like you can go from here to like here, you know, it's okay. And you're like, you can do that. But if you've never done that in private, then odds are when the Lord is asking you to do it in public, it'll never happen. If you never kneel before the Lord, if you've never been in his word, then all of a sudden you're like, gosh, God is so big and I need to kneel before him then you're not cultivating the postures of worship that God has placed for us in this book. And so there are some postures that will only be done privately, and that's fine. And there are some postures that you'll do privately that God will ask you to do publicly, and that's okay too. 
That's okay too. But as we're done, here's what I would love to ask you. Just a few questions. Uh, what is it that is captivating your, your gaze today? What is it that is keeping you up at night that you're thinking about? What is it that if you got it, all of life would be better? What is that thing? And what is one thing that God has done in your life and your past that, that when you think about it, constantly brings awe to you? That constantly brings this, man, God is so much bigger than what I thought. Or what is a posture of worship that you are going to be obedient in this week? You see, God desires his people that worship him in spirit and truth. And when we worship him in spirit and truth, God just moves. And I don't know about you, but I want to be in a place where God is simply moving. And may we be those people that God moves in the middle of our worship. That it encourages us when life gets tough and life gets difficult. That's my hope for us. So let's pray. God, we just say we need you. God, we say that we need all of you. And God, forgive us when, when worship has become this thing that's either only emotion or only truth, and it's not both of them. And so God, I pray that you would fix our eyes upon you. God, that we would look at you. God, that we would see you and that we would just be so in awe of you that it leads us to a place where, where our worship is full of emotion and full of truth. And so, God, we need you to do that. We need you to move. And so, God, as we respond today, I pray that you would move in the hearts of your people here. And that this, and that we'd be encouraged to worship you in this way. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if the Lord is speaking to you and you want us as a staff to pray for you, pray for anything, we would love to do that. We will be up here and you can pray with us and we would love to pray over you or you can kneel here and ask the Lord to move. Ask the Lord on your own to do something. Or if you would like to join this church, we would love to tell you what it means about how to join Central. Or maybe you just need to be quiet. You need to ask the Lord, like, what is it that I'm looking at? And what is it that, is, that I'm in awe of? And maybe you just need to do business with the Lord. But as the Lord speaks to your heart this morning, you come.